the good, the bad, the ugly. Welcome to Sustain Nutrition's podcast, Chewing the Fat, where Joe and James will be discussing all things good, bad and ugly regarding training and nutrition. So pull up your pants, put your best foot forward and get ready for some serious oral pleasure. Without further ado, here are your hosts, Joe and James. Sustain. Nutrition. Chewing. The. Fat. Podcast. Episode. Triple one? Is it one one one? It is indeed. Look yeah. at that. And it's kind of embarrassing that this is. The, we've got Renee Jones coming in talking to us about emotional eating, or talking with us about emotional eating. But this is the first time you're the first official guest that we've had on the podcast. Wow. I'm 110. So that was kind of a bit cringy doing that intro. It's normally just me and Joe. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh, she's going to think that we're absolute. Who are these idiots that have signed up to do a podcast? <laughs> but anyway, it's done now. So, emotional eating, huge issue, especially for a lot of people who listen to this podcast. But before we jump into that, Renee, introduce yourself. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Right. Well, I am Renee Jones. Um, I am a coach and counsellor and speaker. And I spent 40 years on the diet yo-yo before I found what would help me get off the yo-yo, break it, and maintain my weight. So um, in 2012, I lost my weight, and my weight has stayed at goal ever since. Fantastic. So what do you do now in this kind of field, then, I suppose, be good for people to know? I coach people on how to overcome their emotional eating and any other baggage they are tired of dragging with them. Fantastic. So... Tell us a little bit about your journey, um, I suppose, how you became the coach. What changed for you in 2012 then? Mm. Well, I again, I'd, I'd been on a diet since I was 10. And in 2012, I looked down the calendar and thought, my 50th birthday is this year. We've got to do something different. Because my mother and I just did the yo-yo thing up and down. We do the diet for a while and we get fed up and we go do something else. And Every time we just gained all of our weight back. So I was thinking, this is not going to work for me. I'm about to be 50 and things change for women when they get to around 50. So I started out January 1st, New Year's resolution. I was going to do great. And then about a fortnight later, I started again. First of February, I started again. And in March, and by April, I was standing in my closet because I could not find anything that would fit me. I thought, this has gone completely the wrong direction. So I used a safety pin so I could go to work that day. Um, But it kept reminding me all day that I was not on track. So when I got home, I started doing some research. And I I found this wonderful piece of information. Are you ready? It's life shattering. Go for it. Only eat when you are hungry. And I thought, well, if I could do that, I wouldn't need help here. So I kept looking and I ran across actually a coach. Um, and she was saying some things. I thought, oh, that's, that's interesting. That's exactly what I do now. How do we fix it? So I actually worked with her to get past the emotional side of eating 
And then we worked on a lot of other baggage that I was dragging along. And I reached my goal weight the week before my 50th birthday. Fantastic. And it is such a common journey, but unfortunately people don't always get to that second part. It's mm. trying to find a new diet. And like you said that, like, oh, I'll eat when you're hungry. That's brilliant. And kind of we say that that's about as useful as telling an alcoholic, just stop drinking or, you know, someone yeah. who has crippling anxiety, just don't worry about it. It's, yeah, that's the, the easy formula. But, you know, if you look at people who struggle with weight loss or, you know, always gain the weight back, that's a symptom of something else that's going on because it is 100%. It's, you know, it's calories in versus calories out. But it's, you know, the why, why are we not sticking to that? Mm. That's, you know, the, the big issue. So, I mean, is that what you find the number one reason why you, you see diets failing? Oh, well, yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the reason diets fail is we stop doing them. We don't learn anything from what was working for our body as we were doing that. So if we can learn from what works for us, then it's more feasible for us to keep our weight off because it's, it's the going back to the way you ate before that creates the same problem that you had. Hmm. So if you can find what works for your body and with my clients now, I do a metabolic test so that they know exactly what will work for them. And that, that actually changed my experience as well. Cause I lost my weight on a low fat, low calorie diet. And I was tired, hungry, and cranky all the time. Bless my poor husband. But once I, I learned, okay, these are the things that will most will keep you most satisfied. Then it became quite easy because I wasn't starving all the time. And that's, that's a problem with a lot of, of these nutrition plans is that they leave you hungry. Mm. Massively. Well, Joe loves to quote like 80% of binges are driven by hunger or low blood sugar. So if you're relying on willpower because you're hungry, those cravings are going to creep in. And then, like you said, you're going to break that cycle. So what did you find that you were doing? You know, if you can identify yourself as an emotional leader, what kind of situations were you overeating and kind of what examples frequency you know what mm. did you find yourself doing well i i found in particular i think the 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 thing that changed things for me was recognizing how tied i was to peanut butter now i moved to wales in 1986 for a job and suddenly there was no peanut butter and i, I thought how does a country live without peanut butter but I had to a cold turkey off it. But when I got back, I definitely got more into it. And one of the things that I recognized was that it was very tied to good times, to just day-to-day stuff, right? It was a comfort food for me. So when my mother passed away, I all but crawled into my peanut butter jar so a few years later, my grandmother uh, was dying, and I realized that I had a choice here. I could crawl back into the jar and gain that much more weight, or I could figure it out. And it took me a long time, because this was prior to the weight loss, you see. So I would, I would be circling the refrigerator, going back to the peanut butter jar for just another spoonful to make me feel better. After I'd lost my weight, I, I, I finally realized that, oh, I am looking to the peanut butter for that love and connection and encouragement that my grandmother gave me. And once I realized she was not in that jar, 
then it gave me the opportunity to think, okay, how else can we get this need met? It still needs to be met. You still need love and encouragement, right? But we have to find other ways to meet the need that we were trying to meet with whatever food we're stuck to. I was going to say, so what are your coping mechanisms now then? So obviously there's going to be times in your life now when you still need more love and affection and the, the things that you just said there. So what do you do now when you have those, those similar triggers? Well, I do have a wonderful husband who is very wise. So often I go to him and say, okay, I just need some time. And he's, he's, he's lovely in that way. But also prior to getting to that point, I try to do some self-care that keeps me on track. So I walk my dog every morning and I listen to podcasts or books or whatever, because that keeps my mind going in a good direction for me rather than, you know, going down that crazy spiral that we sometimes uh, follow. Or I'll make sure that I get plenty of solitude because I, I love, you know, being on my own, doing whatever it is I'm doing. I may be puttering about the house doing things, but that time alone, um, even to study or to watch videos is, is very helpful for me. So finding the things that fit you in particular, that meet your needs is essential. And when you're teaching clients through that, then what, what are the biggest obstacles that you see when it comes to clients failing to, to do that? They don't think it's going to work or they think it's self-indulgent. What, to take an hour for myself? I don't have time for that. What about my children? What are my grandchildren? And it's that sense of you've got to look after yourself so that you can look after them. But I think women in particular have a hard time prioritizing themselves over the needs of the family. It's a massive one with our clients, isn't it? That one, because it's that idea that self-care is selfish. Yes. So when you reframe it and you say like, well, you know, who benefits from you being, you know, happy, full of energy, you know, fully rested in a good place. Like everyone benefits. You can cope better with stressful situations. You're a nicer partner. You're a nicer mother. You're a nicer, you know, um, friends. You know, you're better, you know, more productive at work. It's like everyone benefits from you taking that bit of self-care. But like you said, it is tough because people will look after everyone else. You know, we do a personality test with our clients when they first start and a lot of them come back as obligers. Like they will do everything for everyone and leave themselves last. And, you know, when you can use the, the airplane analogy, isn't it? Like you need to put your oxygen mask on first because if you go down, everyone goes down with you. You know, it's so, yeah, so it's a big one for us, isn't it? I love that um, four tendencies test. That is yeah. great. That I tell you, that did such good for me in particular because once I started with, because I'm an obliger, of course. So when I started making everything external for accountability, it got so much easier to do things, right? It's, it's wow. a great test. Well done. People, I think, let's see if you agree with this. In my experience, people kind of bang their head against a brick wall with, I need to do this for myself. I need to do this myself. And, and if they engage with that, the Gretchen Rubin's process of, this is just part of who I am. And I, I know we're all about open mindsets, but leaning in and it is poss possible to change. There's different ways to get accountability, but there's this endless repetition of just trying to do things on our own or Blige is doing that, that ultimately, you know, like you said, you've got to 49 years and however many months. And at, at what point do you say, I've given this a good go. I need to do something different. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that it's, it's so simple. I mean, a lot of people don't like personality profiles, but I think they free us up because um, we recognize, oh, this is just part of my personality. However, it was formed. This is just what I need. And that's okay. Mm-hmm. Um, I used to think, I, I, I also give my clients the Enneagram. You know the Enneagram at all? No. It's fascinating, fascinating thing. Um, and there is the Myers-Briggs and the DISC profile and all kinds of things. But if we can look at that, not to pigeonhole ourselves, but say, this is normal for you. This is a way to grow and to learn for yourself so that you make it easier. It's like personalized study just to make it easier for you to succeed in the goals you want. So, yeah, that it was so helpful. And I think coaching works particularly well for those who are obligers because we need that external to help us stay on track. It's, it's, it helps you understand why you do what you do. Yes. You know, so are you you know, certainly not like a horoscope, but you can go, oh, that is me. Yeah, I do act like that. That's how I think. So it's really good one for kind of, maybe people understanding why they've struggled for so long because of not not making, and not making it wrong, just this is how you're wired. So how do we work with how you're wired? It certainly generates more self-compassion, which is, I imagine, something you struggled with. I know it's something that our clients certainly struggle with when things aren't working, that they, they turn the heat on, that they're, Failure, you know, really, really negative language, really destructive mm-hmm. language. You have failures, can't do it. Mm-hmm. It's so simple, it should be easier. And then things get worse and things spiral rather than having that acceptance of, like you say, this is how it is. I need to lean into that and, and engage in that in a way that's going to help me going forwards. Do you still have a coach now out of interest? I, actually, I do. In fact, my original coach doesn't do weight loss anymore, but I keep her on speed dial. Right. So we, we talk regularly and then I have, you know, business coaches and speaking coaches and that sort of thing. But yeah, I keep a coach all the time. How many coaches do you have across different areas? Do you know? Right now, just the two. Okay. Right. Um, I have had oh, various ones who've helped me do different things. Like um, I hired one coach to help me get my book out. I was already a writer. I just didn't know much about that sort of business. So he helped me with that. And then I had a speaking coach who helped me get the TEDx. Um, and then the my current business coach is helping me um, improve how I show up. I think that even like accountability and coaching sometimes can feel like almost like a dirty word for a lot of people. Like I shouldn't need help. You know, the amount of times we hear, I know exactly what I should be doing. I'm just not doing it. It's like, okay, that's cool. But that outside accountability, that coaching, that other set of eyes, you know, independent of emotion and, you know, with the knowledge base can help you do that. I think some people, yeah, like I'm an adult. I shouldn't have someone need to tell me what I should be eating. It's like, that's fine. And look where you are. But my thought is if we're going to continue to learn and to grow, we, we can't have all the answers. If we did, we'd be doing everything. So rather than, you know, saying, oh, I don't need this, I think, yes, I do, because that's the only way I will continue to learn and to grow. And I love it. It's great. You find out all kinds of things that you didn't know before. Yes, it, I mean, it costs some money, of course, but it is such a good investment in yourself. And to go back to that self-compassion, it's, 
I think that we just expect that we're going to know everything. You know, if you look at someone like yourself, who's who's lost the weight, got a book, a TEDx talk, is you immediately think, oh, it's really impressive. And I'm not saying it's not, but it's you've clearly invested at three different stages there that have all helped you get to those places. And it's that willingness to invest and to to have our own fallibilities and our imperfections and say, but I'm willing to work on this and to do better. Let me find someone who knows more, who's done this, who's walked the walk. We had a, a business meeting. We've just joined a new business mastermind. Um, and it's humbling, humbling stuff. When you go in and they say, okay, who's who's doing all of this? And there's every hand goes up except yours. And you're thinking, we're not doing any of this. You know, we're, there's, there's so much for us. There's so much we're doing wrong. But it's then once you've let yourself be a bit frustrated about it going right well actually there's loads of ways we can improve this business now there's loads of there's such a scope to grow there's such a scope to do better and that's and that's exciting or it can be negative if you look at it from that perspective so it's it's catching yourself doing it well i find that anytime i start beating up on myself i'm probably not growing and not learning so in particular with with this whole emotional eating thing that's part of the cycle you beat yourself down and then you want more food to make you feel better. And it does for about mm, however long it takes to swallow it. And then you feel bad again. So you want to go back to more food. It, it stays in the cycle. And I think that's true for business as well. If you start beating up on yourself, that doesn't help you get to the next point. You've got to then say, okay, what do I need to do differently? How can I grow through this without making yourself wrong, without beating up on yourself? Because that it never helps, does it? It almost falls into the whole kind of fixed mindset, open mindset piece as well. I know we've been slightly away from emotional eating, but it's that thing like me and Joe went on the kind of the business meeting, like, right, we've got to do this, this, this. And like I said, you know, for me and him, because I think me and Joe are both very open-minded, it's like, that's exciting. There are loads of things we can do to improve this business. Whereas someone else looking through exactly the same situation might be like, there's too much to do on this business. Like, you know, kind of almost what's the point? And I suppose you almost see it in a weight loss thing when people are like, I've got so much weight to lose. It's like, but we're on that journey. You know, we're better than we were yesterday. We're going to be better than tomorrow than we were today. You know, that's exciting, all these changes. And it's getting that momentum, isn't it? Ah, yeah. Because even if you're only losing half a pound a week, in a year, you're 25 pounds lighter. Yeah. I mean, I, I can't do that anymore, but there was a time when I think if I could just lose 25 pounds, but it is continuing to work at it, continuing to grow to, or reduce, I guess is what somebody yeah. wants to, but grow it's, emotionally and, and mentally. It's interesting that, you know, you've used the words that, that, that our clients use of only half a pound and just 25 pounds. And actually it's not how many people on you know, as a percentage of, of our coaching clients lose 25 pounds in a year, you know, or, and keep and keep it off for that time frame. You know, mm-hmm. It's small numbers. You are in, mm-hmm. you are in the upper echelons of success. If you can lose one stone and, you know, nearly two stone in a year and keep it off. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it is that long-term thing that makes the difference, but that requires making some significant changes. And very often we don't want to make the changes. We just want to make them long enough to get to whatever event or dress or whatever it is we wanted. But we don't think about, okay, how do I need to change my lifestyle so that this fits and it helps me achieve my health goals? 
Yeah, is that one of the opening conversations? Sorry, that you ahead. have with your clients then with regards to expectations and the longevity of the process. How would you approach that? Well, yeah, it's like if if you want to use this as a short term diet, it's it's not going to help you because you will go back to the way you did. But if you if you can learn what foods will actually work for your body, and that doesn't mean you can't have cake or pie sometime, right? We just have to to balance out how we do that, right? You can you can have it. You you can have whatever you want, either in a smaller quantity or a limited number of times. I mean, when I was when I was actually losing my weight, I was on a low fat, low calorie diet because that's what I was taught to do. But I found that if I allowed myself one bar measure glass of wine in the evening, I would follow my plan all day just for that. And if I didn't have the calories left, I couldn't have it. So it was a motivation for me. You can build anything into your plan as long as you pay attention. You know, um, in the States, we have Halloween coming up on what Sunday. So there's candy everywhere, (laughs) right? It's not that you can't have the candy. You just have to be sensible about it. Don't just eat the whole bag. Well, I think that's another part that we see our clients struggle with, this kind of um, all or nothing attitude, where if they had a bit of candy or if they had a piece of cake or if they had a glass of wine, it was part of this strict diet that's supposed to be following. Then that's, you know, another reason why, you know, two weeks in, they just go, well, I can't do this. So it's getting that almost emotion out of those food choices and re-educating them, you know, kind of as you were saying earlier, is you can do a short-term fix and we can do that whole calories in versus calories out. You just eat less and move more and, and that's it. But until you address the reasons why, you know, the habits, the behaviors, the choices, the mindsets, the beliefs that you have around these food choices, then you're mm-hmm. not going to get these long-term changes. You know, that's something that our plan has massively evolved around. I'd say, you know, at the start, we were very much about just nutrition. You know, it's very much because we came from a PT background this was something that we, we set a while through actively personal training. So it's like, here's your training, here's your nutrition, checking you next week where you go. But now, because we have these constant conversations with our clients, it's like, right, this is why you're struggling. This is why you're making these food choices. So, you know, trying to get positive feedback loops changed from, you know, like yours example, like I feel bad, I eat peanut butter, I feel good. Okay, that's something that we need to change because ultimately you go and feel bad, feel good, feel bad again. So it's yeah. much more psychological. But what? how do you identify someone as an emotional eater? Like, what do you think an emotional eater? How would you identify someone? Just in case, because sometimes it's people that we work with who don't necessarily realize that they're emotionally eating. Mm, yeah, and I didn't. I, I, I did it, but I didn't realize that's what it was. So an emotional uh, emotional eating is eating for any reason other than hunger. If you're hungry, that's not emotional eating. If if you are celebrating, I mean, we have feasts around um, holidays, right? Well, and throughout the year, depending on your, your spiritual tradition, but a, a feast is eating for joy. And that, it's not that it's bad. It's just that you have to recognize just because it's Christmas doesn't mean you should have six portions of something, right? 
So we eat for joy. We eat because we're bored. We eat because we're stressed. We eat because we're upset about something. If it's, if it is not for hunger, then it has an emotional component to it. The problem is, is that we have wounds and we eat to try to soothe them, or we don't want to look at those feelings. So we stuff down the feelings and following, follow it with a food chaser. Yeah, brilliant. Uh, and <laughs> again, go back. When people say to us, like, I don't understand why I can't do this. I don't understand why I'm struggling. I gave up drinking, not a problem. I gave up smoking, not a problem. It's like, well, because you can't give up food. Right. You have to eat. And like yes. you said, it's that thing, well, I eat when I'm happy. I eat when I'm sad. I eat to celebrate. You know, it, it, it's always something that's going to be happening. There's always something that's going to involve food. And like you said, it's, it's a really good definition that like it's emotionally, if, if you're not, because I think obviously people think emotionally eating is comfort eating. I eat when I'm sad. I'm an emotional eater. But that's one version. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a really good definition. But how would you, how would you, sorry, Renee, how would you define kind of boredom eating as emotional eating? Cause I think sometimes that's the one that kind of falls in between. And I guess tired eating as well. Mm-hmm. Would you, how would you, transfer that across because i wouldn't necessarily say boredom well they're not i wouldn't say boredom and tiredness are emotions they're they're feelings but it would tie into emotional eating how would you explain that to a client well if you're bored there are so many other things you can do to alleviate the boredom but you chose eating and that makes no sense whatsoever that's a learned behavior yes it gives you something to do but it doesn't it doesn't, it doesn't help you at all. So I think boredom is a feeling and therefore it is part of the emotional spectrum, right? So if you're eating for anything other than hunger, what else do you call it? And the thing is, it's not really hard to overcome emotional eating. You just have to get the hang of it. Right. So hang is an acronym, something that they can can hang their hat on, as it were. <laughs> but the first question is, am I hungry? H, am I hungry? And if you are, you may need to go get something to eat. But if you're not, well, okay. So what is the A? What is the attraction to food? Why does that seem to be the right answer? What's going on? And then the N is, what do you actually need? Because you may need just a walk around the building. You may need to play with the dog or get a hug or let off some steam somehow. But what is the actual need? And then the G is go. Go get that because whatever that is will soothe you more than food ever could. Nice. I like it. So we were very keen on getting people to sit with the cravings for kind of 20 minutes and getting them to score how they feel, you know, so it's going to be mm-hmm. very high. It's going to be 10 out of 10 in the first minute, but by the time mm-hmm. you get to minute 17, 18, it's probably down to a two or a three. And then, you know, because they've not acted on that, then that's exactly what we want to get to. Yeah. Yeah. Because one of the things we don't realize is that thoughts and feelings will pass through us in about 90 seconds if we don't trap them. I mean, if you think about a river, right? The water is the feeling and you can swim in it. 
You can dip your toes in it. You can just watch it go by. As long as you don't put it in, damn it up, it will continue to flow. But when we dam things up, when we make a reservoir and don't allow anything out, the water becomes rather putrid. So if we let those feelings just continue to flow, they'll go down the river and you, they won't bother you. It's only when we hold on to them that it creates the problem. I love that. I think that's a great, a great mental image. One of the ones that, that I use, which is similar that you might resonate with, is the idea that thoughts are like clouds. And to envision myself standing in a field, the cloud comes overhead, that's a thought, and I watch the thought leave. Yeah. I think that was one of, one of my key learning points. I remember when I was younger and someone saying, you do know when someone says something nasty to you, you don't have to be offended by it. And I couldn't mm. compute it. Didn't, I couldn't break it down that you can let other people's words or you can let things go. You know, it's not, it's not a physical act. It's just it's all in your head. Mm-hmm. And I think that the analogy you've got there is similar. Is that something that, that you struggled with at first? Do you think you got better at it or how did you get better at it? I'd be interested to hear. Yeah, I think it's just that recognition that if I don't grab onto this and hold it, if I just let it go, then I get free of it. But it's almost like if you grab onto it, it's sticky and it sticks with you for a long time. Um, it, you know, I, I, I was very stubborn and, and offensive, offendable, I guess is the word. There's a word in there somewhere. And if you, if I hold on to that, if I just keep focusing on that was not nice, that was wrong, they shouldn't have said that. That's the stickiness, isn't it? But if you just kind of step back and go, "Well, okay, let that go," or um, you know, I'm not going to think about that today. I'll think about that tomorrow if I remember. Then it it goes away. It's not nearly so damaging. It doesn't cause rips and scars in in our hearts if we just let some things go. And do you have any practical applications of, of how you would do that? If you had someone who was saying, I can't get the thoughts out of my head, or I can't, I can't do this, what would be the steps that would be part of that for you? You can use a mental eraser, or you can write it down on a piece of paper and then either ball it up and throw it away. Or so, I've had some clients burn those papers because there's something about watching the destruction of all that thinking that helps. But however you can get it out of your mind, get it out here, because there's that, there's that sense of it's caught, it's stuck in my head. And if you can find a way, even a strong breath of blowing it out, just let that thought get in your, in your nasal passage and then go out. But finding some way for you that, that makes sense to you to symbolize pushing it away from you, then that can be very healing. I like that. I've, I've, I've got, I've got one more, I've got one more question before I let James kind of dive in. Have you had an experience, Mike, and you can tell me if I'm wrong, so I'm going to throw a stereotype out there that Americans are better at engaging in therapy. And I think yes. that, that the Brits have more of a stiff upper lip deal with this problem. And I wonder if that's something that, that you that you've noticed or whether and then whether there are approaches that you would take with Brits who kind of have that mindset is that something that you've seen yes in fact one of the jobs um, I was in Wales again in 92 to 94 and my job was to set up a counseling center uh, for a a group that wanted to do this 
And we had a hard time getting people to come in. And they thought it would be so great. I said, well, they're still British. They're like, what? It's like, you guys aren't quite as um, open to it. It's, it's almost second nature for a lot of Americans, but it, it, it's just not that common here yet, or it has a worse stigma. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if they're open to it, you can work with them. If they're not open to it, you, you're wasting your breath. And I think it, possibly coaching is bridging that gap a little bit because coaching in general doesn't go into the, the past like counselors do. And I only go into the past when you need to, because some things just need to be healed, right? But with coaching, you're going, okay, this is working or this isn't. How do I make it work for me? And that makes a difference. And that might be the way to reach more more people who are not as uh, open to it, whether they're British or American or Australian. (laughs) It is such a difference. Like I said, people just need to take a different approach. Because like we said earlier, we're treating the symptoms, but we need to look at the causes and the, you know the symptoms are cured by pain and calorie deficit. You know we've said you know we, if we we work with a client who say you know twenty stone or, or twenty stone plus, and they do eight weeks and the perfectly and the loser stone, fantastic, but it's irrelevant. We need to know what's caused them to get to that twenty stone to get to the place where they started with us. That's what needs to be addressed. You know those are the the big rocks that need moving because yeah. okay, cool. You, you know you can string together eight weeks of you know, solid nutrition and, and lose weight, but what, you know, what's been going on? What's the cause yeah. of, of this? That's what needs to be unpicked. And I think that's what people aren't prepared to look at sometimes. And it's just like, oh, I just need to find a different plan. I need to go paleo. I need to go keto. I need to go, you know, low calorie, low fat or low carb. Or it's like, it's not, it's what has brought you to where you're at right now. That's what needs to be unpicked. Find what's driving you to food for comfort or stress relief. And once you get that uh, awareness, then you can heal it. Brilliant. I think that's a good place to end it, really. Where where can people find you and where can they learn more about you? Uh, I have a website. It's packyourownbag.com. And then I have a book on Amazon called What's Really Eating You? And what's that about? Um, it is basically, um, I, I use a lot of my story, but I work through the various elements of weight loss and what you need to know. And then at the end of every chapter, there's a, questions for them to consider. So they could effectively do it on their own if they do it. I'll be expecting a copy of that in your Christmas stocking. Right. Thank you so much for joining us. It's been our first official guest. I think me and Joe managed to get through that without swearing once. We didn't talk over We didn't, we didn't, we didn't talk over anyone. So. It's, it's like a new podcast. <laughs> so, thank you again so much for joining us. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. It's my joy to be your first guest. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs>